You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Well, welcome again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad you're here with us. So uh, glad to be joined by these guys this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. So 1 Peter is towards the end of your New Testament. 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to begin this morning by reading our text. So put away all malice and all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy, uh, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this good news that this, this uh, text reminds us of, Lord, of what you've done for us. Lord, may we look to you, and may we make you the cornerstone of our lives. Lord, may we build our lives upon you. And Lord, we pray that this morning as we study your word, Lord, would you instruct us? Would you teach us? Lord, in some ways, we know that we might need to be challenged. Lord, would you challenge us? Would you correct us? And may we receive everything that your word has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're currently in a series called I Could Never Believe in a God Who. And for eight weeks, what we're doing is we're uh, answering that, we're finishing that sentence. And what we did is a couple months ago, we put out a poll and we asked people to help us uh, fill out this, finish this sentence. How would you or other people you know finish that sentence? I could never believe in a God who, and what we did is we took that information, we looked at other studies as well, bigger studies too, and we, we identified eight things that people say create the biggest hurdles for them when it comes to embracing Christianity and really believing the gospel and following Jesus. And, and that's what we're doing these eight weeks is we're addressing these issues head on. And there's two reasons we wanna do that. Number one, we wanna do that because our goal is that we wanna remove some of those barriers that keep people from really putting their faith in Jesus, wholeheartedly embracing the gospel. You see, the Bible says that what you believe absolutely matters. And so we want to help people move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. So that's one of the things we're trying to do in this series is maybe address some of these things. Hopefully we can remove some of these barriers and help people move into a deeper faith or a richer and, and more committed faith. The other goal here is to equip you. 
Because we know that you, as you leave here, you're gonna go and you're gonna talk to family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers. And a lot of them are dealing with these very issues. These are the things that they say are hurdles for them, either in believing Christianity at all or in going deeper and really embracing the, the gospel wholeheartedly. And so we wanna equip you to be able to talk to them and have some tools in your tool belt to be able to say, well, actually, think about this and consider this. And hopefully, you, God will use you to help them move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. You know, one of the things that, uh, when it comes to Christianity, one of, the, one of the biggest struggles that people have is they say, I could never believe in a God who creates hateful and hypocritical followers. Have you guys ever heard that one? I could never believe in a God who creates hateful and hypocritical followers. You know, I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, when I, when I lived in Hungary before I moved to the U.S., um, uh, I, was, I came back to Colorado to attend the wedding of a friend of mine from high school. He was getting married, and I came for just a week. And so Rosemary and the kids remained back home in Hungary, and I came uh, by myself to this wedding. So because I was at this wedding by myself, they seated me at a table with uh, some single men. So I got to talking to the guys at my table, and we were having a nice time. We got to talking. They asked me, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, I live in Hungary. Why, why do you live in Hungary? Well, I'm a pastor. And so, it, you know, it came up in the conversation that I was a pastor, and as soon as uh, they found out I was a pastor, they told me something about themselves, and that's that they were gay. And uh, I could tell, as soon as they told me this, they were waiting to see how I would react, right? Would my demeanor change? Would I stop being friendly? Would I disengage in conversation with them? You see, these guys had certain assumptions about how Christians are, and they wondered if I would live up to those expectations. Um, their assumption was that Christians don't like people like them. Now, their assumption was that, you know, Christians, they talk a lot about loving people, but when it comes to people like them, Christians have anything but love. And so anyway, we continued talking, and again, after they found out that I was a pastor and they told me they were gay, they went on to tell me a story. And a few years, this, this was a story, a few years earlier, and some of you are going to remember this because it was a local story here in our news here in Colorado. But a few years ago, a well-known pastor from Colorado Springs, it's about 10 years ago now, he got caught in Denver buying meth and visiting male prostitutes. And what made it worse is that this particular pastor, he was really well-known, you know, he had been on like national news media outlets and stuff like this, you know, and, and his big thing was he was really outspoken against, guess what, drugs and homosexuality, right? That's what he railed against. That's what he was famous for. And then this guy gets caught doing the very things that he preached so heartily against as a preacher. Hypocrisy, right? I mean, that's what it is. That's hypocrisy. And these guys I was sitting with at this wedding, they were actually friends with the guy that the pastor had a relationship with, and it actually happened in the building that they lived in in Denver. And they told me, you know, they were glad to see this guy get busted because in their opinion, this is what Christianity is, right? It's just a bunch of judgmental people who themselves are actually no different than anybody else. They're, and that, therefore, they're hypocrites. And, and they would say, how are we supposed to take Christianity seriously if this is what Christians are like, especially if this is what their leaders are like? You know, why would we want anything to do with Christianity if it's full of hateful, judgmental, hypocritical people? See, these guys that I met at this wedding I'll tell you this, they are not alone in feeling this way, right? And you, you might already know that. Let me read you a couple of quotes that kind of illustrate this point. 
Friedrich Nietzsche, you ever heard of him? He's a German philosopher. He's the guy who famously said, God is dead and we have killed him. Here's what Friedrich Nietzsche said. Uh, And by the way, Nietzsche was the son of a Lutheran pastor who died when he was five years old. But here's what Friedrich Nietzsche said about Christians. He said, I will believe in their redeemer when Christians look a little bit more like the redeemed. One person who responded to a, a poll similar to ours said this, how can so much judgment and hate come from a religion which is supposed to be based on love? Uh, I heard someone else recently ask this question. Why are non-Christians sometimes better moral people than Christians? Brendan Manning, uh, an author, he, he said this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. See, we live in an age, right? It's a very pragmatic age. And we live in an age where people think, look, if something's true, then it will work. And conversely, if something doesn't work, then they make this conclusion. If something doesn't work, well, then it must not be true. And so when people see Christians behaving badly, some of them react by saying this very thing. They say, if these are the kinds of people that Christianity creates, then there must be something fundamentally wrong and broken with Christianity itself. A large research project was done back in 2007 by the Barna Research Group in which they asked a large amount of people who are not Christians, they asked them why they rejected Christianity. And the the responses were really surprising for a lot of church leaders because here's what came back from this poll. That the majority of people who rejected Christianity said they didn't do it for evidential reasons. Meaning it wasn't because they believe like science discredits God. It wasn't because they believe that you can't trust the Bible. The, The great majority of people who rejected Christianity said that they rejected it for personal reasons. Personal reasons. In other words, they've been hurt by Christians in the past. So they felt judged by Christians or they had a bad experience with a Christian leader or they've seen Christians act in a way that's unloving or unkind or unethical or just plain wrong. And they got to the point where they said this. They said, if that's what Christians are like, then I don't want to be one. I don't want anything to do with that. And if that's you today, I just want to begin this morning by saying this. I, let me just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you've been hurt. I'm sorry that those things have happened to you. I'm sorry that you've been let down. And I gotta tell you on a personal level, and if you spend any amount of time in church, it's really, you know, it will happen to you. It's unavoidable. I, I'll tell you, I've been hurt by other Christians deeply. And, and, and you know, honestly, like, I've been stabbed in the back. I've even been stabbed in the front, right? Like I've been let down. I've been betrayed. I've been hurt deeply. But I haven't given up on Jesus, and, I, and here's the other thing. I haven't given up on the church. That's what a lot of people say. Well, I haven't given up on Jesus. I just don't want anything to do with the church. But I'm here to tell you, no. And we're gonna see that those two go together. See, I haven't given up on Jesus and I haven't given up on the church. And my hope is that as we talk about this today, I can convince you that you should not allow the bad behavior of some Christians to be a barrier for you when it comes to embracing Christianity and, being, uh, and embracing the gospel and being a Christian. First thing I want to talk to you about is this. There are actually two different kinds of hypocrites. Do you know that? And actually the Bible deals with these two different kinds of hypocrites differently and separately. Jesus speaks to these two kinds of hypocrisy in very different ways. First of all, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word, which literally means actor. It's somebody who's pretending to be something they are not. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. 
Okay, but again, there are two types of hypocrites. Number one, the, the first type of hypocrite are people who call themselves Christians when in fact they are not actually Christians. Secondly, you have people who are true disciples of Jesus, but sometimes they fall short of what Jesus called them to be and called them to do. Now, this might be a newsflash for some of you, but let's talk about that first group, people who claim to be Christians, but in fact, they are not. 70% of people in the United States claim to be Christian, 70%. But on average, only about 25% of the population attends church services regularly. Now, that percentage is actually lower in this part of Colorado than in other parts of Colorado, like Colorado Springs. You know, Colorado, by the way, has the sixth lowest attendance, uh, church attendance rate in the United States. Now, again, I understand that going to church doesn't automatically make you a Christian. In fact, that's my very point. But this is a very telling statistic because here's what it reflects. It reflects that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, who self-identify as Christians, but they're not actively worshiping or following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus told us, he said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not every person who, call, who goes to church, not every person who calls himself a Christian is actually a Christian. And that's why the Bible encourages us to examine ourselves to make sure that we are indeed in the faith. The Bible actually reserves, Jesus as well, reserved his harshest words for these kinds of hypocrites. And, and that wasn't just to slam them. It was to warn them. It was to call them, to get their attention, to wake them up. In Matthew chapter 23, in fact, Jesus goes on and he used the word hypocrite a lot. And he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says over and over, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside it's only death. In another place, he says, scribes and hypocrites, not only are you not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but you, by your behavior, you are preventing other people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. See, when it comes to this group, this first group, it's really not fair to judge all of Christianity based on the behavior of people who aren't actually following Jesus. I think everybody would agree with that. So let's, let's move on. That's the first kind of hypocrite. The second kind of hypocrite is the person who is a true follower of Jesus and is trying, you know, to be a disciple of Jesus, but sometimes they fail to live up to Jesus' standards. Now, that shouldn't be very surprising that people would fall short of Jesus' standards when you consider the fact of what Jesus' standard is. Like, do you know what Jesus' standard is? Here's what it is perfection. Like that's it. It's perfection. You might say, well, wait a second. Nobody's perfect, right? Agreed. I agree with you. Well, you say, well, you know, it's not like Jesus expects us to be perfect. Like he doesn't tell us you have to be perfect. No, actually, that is literally what he said. Like, let me show you in his own words. Here's what Jesus said. Therefore, you must be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. So who said that? Jesus to his disciples. That is the standard that Jesus gave. And so with a standard that high, it's not surprising that even the most devout, sincere, devoted Christians fall short of that standard all the time. Does that make them hypocrites? Well, in a way, yes, it does, right? Why? Because they are not living up to the standard which they themselves espouse, right? They're not living up to their own standard. They are not practicing what they preach. Guys, I'm guilty of that. I'm guessing that you are too. I know that I would say every single Christian in the world is guilty of that. But in another way, 
This is different than the other kind of hypocrisy that we're talking about. And Jesus actually spoke and reacted to this kind of hypocrisy differently than he did to the other kind. See, this person is the person who isn't stubbornly proud, but they're humbly repentant. So we can see some examples of this in the Bible. Let me just give you a few. Peter, right, one of Jesus' main disciples. On the night when Jesus was arrested, what does Peter do? He's in the garden. He takes out a sword. Like, why does he have a sword in the first place, right? But he takes out his sword, and he attacks this dude and cuts off his ear. Now, I always picture, how does that happen? Like, was he swinging for his head and just barely missed, like chopping him right in half, right? Or did he, like, wrestle the guy to the ground and slice his ear off? I kind of think it was the latter, but I don't know. Either way, he cuts this dude's ear off. You know, and you look at that and you say, so typical, right? This is Christians. It follows Jesus, who's all about like loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you. But look how they act, right? The Jesus, it's all just a bunch of talk. But when it really comes down to it, they're just violent. They're spiteful. They're just like everybody else. What a hypocrite. But that's not how Jesus reacted to Peter, is it? How did Jesus respond to Peter? First, he healed the, the official's ear. And then he told Peter, Pete, bro, like that's just not how we do things. That's not what we're about. In other words, he taught him and he corrected him. Another time, Jesus and his disciples, they went into a particular village and Jesus and his disciples, they went in, they're trying to gather people, trying to share with them the gospel of the kingdom and the people there disrespected Jesus. And so his disciples are like, what, what is this, right? You're the Messiah, you're like the Lord, and you come into this town and people disrespect you? And these disciples said, Jesus, you know what you should do, Jesus? You should teach these guys a lesson. You should call down fire from heaven and you should burn these guys so they never do that again. And again, what, what do we look at? We say, oh, look, here we go again. Hypocrisy, right? Like these guys follow Jesus who's all about love and here they are, they're just spiteful, they're angry people, right? hypocrites. But that's not how Jesus responded. Again, how did Jesus respond to their attitude and their behavior, which was clearly wrong? Here's what he did. He gently and graciously corrected them and taught them. And here's what I want to tell you. If Jesus showed grace and patience to his followers when they messed up, maybe we should too. Amen? Like, maybe we should too. Like, Jesus had no patience for proud, condescending hypocrites, but he had tons of patience and tons of grace for those who humbly and sincerely sought to follow him, but they made some mistakes along the way. And I would just challenge somebody who says, you know, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. They're all judgmental. I just want you to stop and think about that phrase and really think about this. Um, isn't that itself a hypocritical judgmental statement. Really, it's hypocritical because you're judging people, you're judging an entire group of people based on the behavior of a few or even your fear of how they might behave. See, instead, wouldn't it be fair instead to judge Christianity not on the basis of some Christians who have dropped the ball, but to judge Christianity based on what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived. I like this quote from Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer, the writer of War and Peace. Here's what he said. He said, attack me rather than the path I follow. Attack me. He says, if I know the way home, but I'm walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way even if I'm staggering along it from side to side? See, when it comes to Christianity, there are people who are honestly trying to follow Jesus who are at different stages of growth. And Jesus gave his disciples grace and patience and instruction as they grew and made mistakes along the way. And guys, we would do well to do the same. 
to show grace and patience to others as well as they grow and make mistakes along the way. In our text that we read earlier, I wanna, I wanna go through it. We're gonna go through it verse by verse. And here's the deal. Peter is writing um, to this second group of hypocrites that we've talked about, right? Those who are sincerely seeking to follow Jesus but sometimes fall short. And there are three things that I wanna walk you through in this passage which speak to this topic of hypocrisy. Number one, there's a leak in the boat Number two, there's a chisel in the quarry. And number three, there's a stone that's different from the others. There's a leak in the boat. There's a chisel in the quarry. There's a stone that's different from the others. Let's begin by talking about this first point. Look at how Peter begins this section. He says, put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander. Peter's writing to Christians, devoted Christians, and he's telling them, stop being hypocritical. Stop being malicious, stop being envious, stop being slanderous. And he says down in verse 12, why? He says, let your conduct in front of Gentiles or non-believers be good so that they'll have nothing to accuse you of, right? I love this though because Peter doesn't just tell them to stop being hypocritical. He actually tells them how to stop being hypocritical. He doesn't just diagnose them. He gives them a prescription. Look at verse two. Here's the prescription. He says, like newborn infants, Crave the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation. What is pure spiritual milk? Well, in Hebrews chapter five, the writer to Hebrews uses almost an identical phrase about spiritual milk. And he uses it to describe the basic fundamental teachings of Christianity. So we can say this, refer, what this is referring to, spiritual milk is referring to the basics of the Christian gospel. And what are the basics of the Christian gospel? It's all about how we have sinned. We've fallen short of God's perfect standard. Therefore, we deserve God's judgment for what we've done. But God, those glorious words, but God, because he loves you so much, he came to us, he became one of us, and he took the judgment for your sins so that you could be forgiven and redeemed. And Peter is saying that simple message is what you need to hear over and over again in order to grow in maturity. The way you grow is by always coming back to the gospel, being reminded of God's love and your sin and what Jesus did for you. When you do that, it makes you, guess what? It makes you a humble, soft person. It makes you thankful. It makes you confident in God's love. And those things, when you have them, they absolutely change the way that you relate to other people. When you, when you realize that you're humble, you're a sinner, you don't think of yourself as better than other people. Instead, you're thankful for what you've received. You're a thankful person and you don't compete with other people to prove yourself because you're so secure in God's love for you. See, that's why we take communion here every Sunday. That's why when we study the Bible, you know, apart from this series, we usually go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. Why? Because we want that pure spiritual milk so that we can grow. You know, if someone's been a Christian for a long time, that doesn't automatically make them mature. You know that, right? We've all got room for growth, every single one of us. And the way we grow is by coming to the word of God and receiving what it has to say to us and letting it transform our hearts and our minds. You see, here's the deal. We're all in the same boat and there's a leak in the boat, right? We're all in the same boat and there's a leak in the boat. Not every single one of us. Not a single person in the world lives up to even their own moral standard. Francis Schaeffer, the author, he puts it this way. He said, imagine if everybody in the world had to wear a recording device around their neck and it would turn on whenever you said the words ought to or should 
right? In other words, whenever you say that this is how people ought to act, this is what people should do, it would start recording. You know, if you said people should be kind, people should be generous, people should be tolerant, people should be not judgmental, and it would record those things. In other words, that is your standard, your personal standard of what you believe people should and shouldn't do and how people should live. And he said this, if, if you had a recording device like that, and then on judgment day, you stand before God, and God says, look, I'm gonna be super gracious with you, super generous. I'm not going to judge you on the basis of the Ten Commandments. I'm not gonna judge you on the basis of the Bible or any other religion for that matter. I'm only going to just play this back to you and see, did you live up to the standard that you yourself set and said other people should live up to this standard? And Francis Schaeffer says, you know, if, if God did that, Zero people would pass that test. Zero. None of us would. Because not, none of us live up to even our own standard of what we believe is right and wrong. You might put it this way. The truest hypocrite is the person who says that they aren't a hypocrite. Right? That's a true hypocrite. A person who says they're not a hypocrite. Here's why. Because we all have a moral standard and we've all fallen short of even our own moral standards, much less God's moral standard. So we've all fallen short, we've all sinned. None of us can save ourselves. And that's why Peter says in verse four, come to him, come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Guys, we're all in the same boat and there's a leak in the boat. We've all fallen short, we've sinned and our only hope is to turn to Jesus and receive that salvation that's freely offered to us because of his life and death and resurrection, which he did for you. Okay, the next point, there's a chisel in the quarry. There's a chisel in the quarry. In verse four, Peter calls Jesus the living stone. And then he's gonna talk about that more as we go on, you'll see. But first he tells us that we as Christians, we are also living stones. And he says God is taking us as living stones and building us up together into a spiritual house, a new temple. Think about what that means. It means that God is building something and you are an integral part of it. You are an integral part of what God is doing. Think about a stone wall. If you remove one of the stones out of the middle of that wall, that wall is immediately weaker. It's immediately compromised. One stone by itself can't make a wall. One stone can't make a wall. But each stone is important in the wall. See, God is taking each of us as individuals and he's bringing us together and making us into one body, right? He's putting us into place, into his work, what he's building and doing. And you have an important role to play in this grand work that God is doing, what he's building. See, Peter obviously is making reference to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem when he's talking about building this structure out of living stones. Earlier this year, some of you may know, we took a group from here in Whitefields and we went over to Israel and we got to see the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. That's the only portion of the temple which was from the time of Jesus, which is still standing today. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman troops. But remember this, it was still standing when Peter wrote this letter. And so Peter's referencing this. You know what's so incredible about the Western Wall? is that you stand there and you're looking at this huge wall. I mean, it's really tall. And you can see the original stones that were used to build the temple walls. And again, this is still intact from over 2,000 years ago. And what's so incredible about it is the sheer size of these stones. And here's another thing. You know that that wall was built without any mortar between the stones? No mortar. And they put these stones, and the size of these stones are incredible. They're as big as your car. They're as big as an SUV, right? These stones, they're humongous. 
And what they did is they stacked these stones on top of each other with such precision. They cut them so perfectly that they were able to put them together and build this wall without mortar because they were cut so tight. In fact, they're so tight that you can't even fit a piece of paper between them. Those prayers that they stick in there, they only go in about an inch, right, in the very opening. So they stacked these stones together, and here's why. They actually prepared them beforehand in the quarry. And this is why they they believed that the temple was a holy place. And so they didn't want the sound of hammers and chisels on the temple mount. And so what they did is they prepared all the stones beforehand in the quarry, and then they brought the prepared stones out to the temple mount and just put them into place so there would be no hammering and chiseling on the temple mount. And and again, you can still visit this quarry, actually. It's called Zedekiah's Quarry. It's right there in in, in the city of Jerusalem. And you can visit it today. But here's the thing about these stones that they used to build the the temple wall. Again, what Peter's referencing here. They, They didn't just go and find these stones in the quarry already cut to size, did they? No, of course not. That's not how quarrying works, right? No, they found these these. Stones, and they were just raw material. They had jagged edges. They were raw. They were misshapen. And a ton of time and a ton of effort went into chiseling these stones in order to, what, knock off the rough edges and to shape them and form them and get them into the right size that they needed to be so they could take their position in the wall. And guys, don't you see, that is what Peter is saying about you and me. We go through that same process. We're all under construction. God is taking you just as you are. And he's, he's taking you as raw material with lots of rough edges, right? Lots of stuff that you need to knock off. And he begins to work on you like an artist, shaping you and fashioning you into the vision of what he wants you to be so that you can fulfill the purpose that he has for you in his master plan. Romans eight twenty nine says this, that those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You know what that means? It means that God's goal, his image, his vision for you and what you will become is to make you and shape you into the image of Jesus. And guys, that's really good news because Jesus was pretty great. In fact, I love Hebrews chapter one, verse nine. It tells us that Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. Okay, so if you want to be happy and be like Jesus, it's a good thing to be made like Jesus. In my mind, I I always picture it like Michelangelo, you know, working on his greatest masterpiece, the statue of David. And Michelangelo famously said that when he looked at the raw piece of, of stone, he could already envision David inside of it. And he felt that his job was just to release it, to knock off the parts that were unnecessary and release the masterpiece that was already inside. And so what did he do? He got his chisel and he got his hammer and he started removing. He started hammering on it and chiseling and removing the parts that didn't belong. Boom, right? Boom. Just removing unnecessary parts, knocking off rough edges. And I imagine, you know, if you're a living stone, right, like a living stone that feels things and somebody's hammering on you and chiseling on you, that process is uncomfortable. It hurts. And that's exactly, though, what God does in our lives. He's this master artist, this master sculptor. We're like raw material, and he comes to us. We've got rough edges. And in order for God to shape us into the people he wants us to be for the purpose he's called us to, he has to remove some stuff, knock off some rough edges. And guess what? That chiseling process, it hurts sometimes. It hurts. like You you feel like you're getting cut into and pounded on. But through this process, God is doing something good. He's forming you and shaping you into the image of Christ, which is, again, exceedingly good. For who? For you, 
right? And we know that God has a purpose for you beyond just you. He has a purpose for you in the world. And I'll just leave you with this last thought before we move on. There at the Western Wall, right? You can see these stones. Again, they're placed so closely, you can't even put a piece of paper between them. The, the prayers that people put in, they only go in about an inch or so. So think about this, these stones that were being lowered into place, these giant stones, any rough edges they still had on them, when they were put into place, they would knock against each other. And you know what they would do? They would rub against each other and they would knock off the rough edges. In the same way, maybe there are some people who rub you the wrong way, don't they? They've got rough edges and you're like, these people rub me the wrong way. Uh, may I suggest to you, that we as living stones are being built up together and God uses other people's rough edges in order to knock off some of your rough edges, in order to smooth out some things in your life that need to be worked on. So rather than getting upset about other people's rough edges, understand they may be the very thing that God is using in your life to shape you and knock off some of your rough edges. So again, may we be those who completely surrender ourselves to the master and to this process, to his artistic freedom to make us into who he wants us to be, his vision for your life. And finally, let's, let's conclude with this last point. There's a stone that's different from the others. Continuing with this metaphor of living stones, God is using to build something, right? Peter goes on in verses six through eight, and he quotes a few Old Testament verses about the Messiah, which refer to the Messiah as a stone. First, he quotes from Isaiah, uh, Isaiah in verse six, and he says, no one who puts their trust in Jesus will be put to shame. That's important for you to remember. People will inevitably always let you down, but Jesus will not. Remember that. But then in verse seven, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, which says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Did you know that this is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? Weird, right? Like you would think it might be a different one. This is the number one most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And what this verse is referring to is actually something interesting and a little bit odd. It's referring to some, a story that's not in the Bible. It's actually kind of Jewish folklore, kind of like how we tell stories about Paul Bunyan, right? And this story, probably not true, but it's, it's a story of Jewish folklore. It was in the Jewish psyche. And the writer, the, the psalmist, is making reference to that story as he tells this. And here's the story. The story was that as the temple was being built and they brought these massive stones from the quarry that had been prepared, they, they laid them all out on the temple mount to be assembled into the walls of the temple. And as the builders were there, they found one stone which was a different shape than all the other stones. And so the builders assumed that this must have been a mistake. It must have been an error. And so what did they do? They took that stone and they rolled it. You know, Jerusalem sits on a hill and they rolled it down the hill into the Kidron Valley, which is also where they would throw the trash from the city, right? It's the trash heap. And so they threw out this stone. They said, oh, this must have been a mistake. It was an error, However, soon they realized that the stone they had cast out, the one they had thrown away, was actually the cornerstone of the temple, the most important stone that lays the foundation for the whole structure. Cool story, right? Why does it matter? Well, let me tell you this. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus quotes that verse. He says this, what then is this that was written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he says this, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. 
over and over, Jesus and the New Testament writers, they tell us that this rejected cornerstone in this story is a picture of Jesus. And Jesus gives this incredible warning here in, in Luke chapter 20. He says, I am the cornerstone and everyone who falls on me will be broken, but on whomever I fall, I will scatter them to pieces. I will scatter them like dust. Here's what that means. If you cast yourself on Jesus, if you make him the cornerstone of your life, you will inevitably be broken. Why? Because you have to admit that you need a savior. That's the first step in receiving salvation. You have to admit that you've fallen short and that you can't save yourself. But let me tell you this, you don't need to be afraid of being broken before God. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's a good thing to be broken and humble and contrite before God. That's, that's where life begins. On the other hand, Jesus said, look, but if you are not broken before me, then one day you will be broken by me. Either you will cast yourself on Jesus or one day he, the righteous judge of all the earth, will fall upon you and you will be crushed to pieces. These are Jesus' words, guys. This is his stark warning. And here's what I wanna leave you with this morning. Jesus is the stone that is different than all other stones. Everybody else is in the same leaky boat, but Jesus is different. Jesus is unique. And here's the question. What will you do with Jesus? Think about this story about people building the temple, coming across this stone that doesn't fit. That stone is Jesus. And the question is, what will you do with that stone? Will you make him the cornerstone of your life or will you reject him? That, guys, that is the most important question you will ever answer in your entire life. And I'll tell you what, as true as it is that Christians are sometimes hypocrites, as true as it is that I myself am sometimes a hypocrite, and sometimes I don't act in the way that accurately reflects the heart of Jesus, and neither do other Christians, listen, that doesn't change the fact that Christianity is either true or it isn't. Jesus either is who he said he was or he's not, regardless of how some Christians behave. Did you know that Albert Einstein cheated on his wife? But that doesn't make the theory of relativity any less true, does it? It's true, he, cheated, he was married three times. Here's the deal, guys. One day, each of us is gonna stand before God. And the question you will have to answer is this. What did you do with the Savior he sent you? That's the question he will ask you. What did you do with the Savior I sent you? Did you make him the cornerstone of your life or did you reject him? And on that day, maybe you'll say, oh, but you know what? There were these Christians and they were terrible hypocrites. But again, the question is not, what did other people do with Jesus? The question will be, what did you do with Jesus? And I want to make sure you understand this. Don't let other people's shortcomings hold you back from experiencing God's love and grace and transforming power in your life. Here's the deal. We're all in the same boat, and there's a leak in the boat. But we've all, we've all got the same problem, right? We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. And God wants to take you and he wants to shape you into something great and give you a place in what he's doing and what he's building. All of us are under construction. None of us are, start out perfect, right? We've all got rough edges that God has to knock off and pieces he has to remove. And sometimes he uses other people in our lives to do that. But at the end of the day, all of us have to deal with Jesus. And the question is this, will you make him the cornerstone of your life? Will you cast yourself upon him or will he fall upon you? I wanna encourage you today, cast yourself upon him because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, amen?
Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, may we take it with all seriousness, Lord, your, your call to us to cast ourselves upon you, but also, Lord, the, the warning of what will happen if we are not broken and humble before you. Lord, we admit, we confess our sins just corporately as a group. We had confessed that we have fallen short. We have not lived up to what you've called us to be, or what you've called us to do all the time. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you give grace to the humble. May we be those humble people who build our lives upon you. Or may we be those who receive your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 